Heavenly Father, Lord, as this, uh, as this winter ends, and Lord, we look forward uh, yeah, to spring, Lord, as it is in the natural, I pray it, it will be, Lord, in the spiritual. Lord, it has been a hard winter, and there has been a lot of death, but Lord, you bring forth new life, and I pray that, Lord, in our lives, in the life of your body, in the life of your church. And Lord, as we just lay behind the things which we have gone through, Lord, we look with expectation into the things that you have us to move into and the paths and the ways that you have, Lord, prepared for each and every one of us. And so, Heavenly Father, I ask by your Holy Spirit that as I lay this, uh, yeah, this word, your word, down, Lord, at the foot of the cross, that you might take it up and, Lord, use it because, Lord, we have faith by hearing your word. And, Lord, that word needs to become our word. It needs to become your word in, in us if it is to have any life at all. And so, Father, I ask your blessing, Lord, uh, you know, for the sake of your glory, but, Lord, for the sake of what you need to do in each and every one of us, in Jesus' name. I'm going to read and finally got to chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. And um, as I said, it was a it was a turning point, you know, for Jesus. And from this time on, we will see that Jesus doesn't minister much, you know, to the public, but his focus turns towards his own disciples. And I noticed this morning there was a there was a real hush here as and I sense that God is bringing us into a, a quiet place. As much as we want to rush forward, God is just coming upon us and you know, leading us beside the still waters and he's, he's stilling our, our souls and trying to get us into a place where we will be ready to actually move on. So let's just read you know, from John chapter 12 and we'll go from verse 1 through to verse 8. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he raised from the, from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have always, but me you do not have always. It's an interesting scripture. There are in the four Gospels four mentions of Jesus being uh, in a place where a woman has come up and poured oil over him uh, and anointed him. There's one in Luke, one in Mark, one in Matthew, and one in the one we've just read. 
and there's a little bit of controversy about which one belongs to where. And so I just want to sort that out, so if you bear with me so you understand where I'm coming from. There are three different sets of opinions as to where these anointings happen and who was doing them and when it happened. The first view is that there was just the one anointing and it's the same woman and it all happened at the one place so that the one in Luke, Matthew, Mark and John were all the same. The second one is that there were actually three different anointings of Jesus. The one found in Luke which was um, at the at the house of a Pharisee by the sinful woman. And then there was this one here which you know, John talks about six days before the Passover. And then they say that there was another anointing you know, two days before you know, the, you know, the actual Passover at the house of Simon the leper. The third opinion is that there are only two. One in the book of Luke which talks about this sinful woman uh, at the house of, uh, of the uh, you know, Pharisee and that the one mentioned in John and the one mentioned in Mark uh, and Matthew are all the same and that they happened at the house of, of, of Simon the leper and they happened six days before the Passover which is what John is actually saying here and that's the one I'm going to go with because that's the one which harmonizes you know, with the Gospels and that's the one that lines up with Scripture. Now there is one more discrepancy which I'll talk about a little bit later when we get to talk about Judas. The one in John talks about six days before the Passover. In Matthew and Mark he mentions two days before the Passover. And so there is you know, this whole discrepancy as to which day it was. But most commentators will say it happened on the sixth day before the Passover it happened at the house of Simon, uh, so, yeah, sorry, Simon the leper, and it was done by Mary, who was the who was the uh, sister of Martha, and uh, yeah, Lazarus was her brother. So that's where I'm coming from. So bear with me, just in case you start to read the other ones, and you will see this conflict, and we'll explain it as we go through. So let's just take it from verse one. Then six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. So if we remember last time, Jesus had to leave and he went out into the wilderness, but he comes back, he comes back to Bethany. And he comes back you know, to begin this period just before the cross. And it is a beautiful scene here in this house of Simon the leper. And to me, it is, it is a, a foundational scripture about the way the church of God works. Here is people coming to be with Jesus, coming to celebrate and trying to draw near. And they come together in this house. And I find that whenever people come together to worship Christ and to follow him and to listen to him, then the Spirit of God moves to bring God's presence into that. And this is, this is what's going to happen here. And you'll find this over and over again, not, not just here, but right up to the cross and right after the cross and right through the book of Acts, right through to Revelations. Whenever people meet together 
to seek Jesus Christ and to worship him and to give thanks, the Spirit of God moves to do something. And God brings his word and God brings you know, you know, you know, his message. Now it's very easy in this passage to get our eyes onto Mary and to start talking about all about Mary because Mary seems to be the focus of what John is talking about. But the reality is we need to get beyond that, otherwise it becomes a form of Mary worship. And all we do is talk about Mary, but we need to understand what the Father had spoken to Mary and what Mary was trying to bring over in this message as she came into the scene. And then it becomes all about Jesus and not all about Mary. And we see in her that she understood something that the Father wanted done. And Mary was touched by the Father and motivated by the Holy Spirit to come to Jesus in this place uh, and, to, uh, and to bring this oil uh, and to anoint him. And she does this for two reasons. The first is that the Father wanted his son to be anointed as a king who was about to be buried. And, and the Father wanted to spare no expense in this. And so the Father puts it upon Mary's heart to take this oil and to come into the situation and to pour it over, over Jesus. But secondly, the Father wanted to do something else. He wanted to anoint the Lamb of God. Jesus, as much as he was king and he would die as a king, he came to die as the sacrificial lamb of God. And the, if you look at the Jewish history and what they did, they used to anoint the sacrificial lamb. And so there is a dual purpose uh, in this anointing. To anoint him as king and, and, to, uh, and, to, and, to, and to bring him into this place ready for burial, but also yet to anoint the sacrificial lamb of God. And so this is, this is the, the reason that God moves upon Mary in this mighty way and motivates her to come into this situation. Now, in this situation we find here in this house, they are all, they've all come and they're all meeting together and it's full of joy and it's full of happiness. But it opens up you know, you know, with the scripture that Lazarus, who had been dead, is now alive. And to me that speaks you know, like a foreshadow of what the church of God will be all about. These people were standing on, on resurrection ground. This man had been dead four days and now he was alive and in their midst and sitting at the table. And people, the church of God has been built upon resurrection ground. We were called to live and walk and move upon the resurrection work of Jesus Christ. And this scene here you know, foreshadows what would happen after the cross. We come to celebrate and we worship upon the resurrection ground of Christ. He who was dead is now alive. And this is our message. This is our heart call. We who are dead are now alive. People who have come in are dead, but they will be made alive in the things of Christ. And this is the work of the cross to bring people out of death upon and into resurrection ground. And this is what his church does. And as a church, we live and we worship and we act 
in that way. And we see here that what does resurrection ground means? There are a lot of people here that had a lot to be grateful for. We have Simon who was a leper and has been healed. We have Lazarus who was dead and is now alive. And all the, all the pain and heartache had been taken out of that death. And how much more do we have when we come together to give thanks for, you know, to God? And that's why we are a thankful people. Yes, we have been through things, but we have much to give thanks for. And so this is the way the church lives and moves upon resurrection ground. We should begin from that place of being thankful for what God has taken us through and what he's, what he's about to do. And we give thanks from that angle. Verse 2, they made him a supper and Martha served but Lazarus who was one, was one of those who sat at the table with him. How lovely it is when we come before him and many times through the Bible it talks about us preparing a, a meal and coming you know, you know, like around the table and coming to him. And quite often when we talk about church it's always around sharing a meal and sharing that with Christ at the table. And a lot of it is in the service comes to that. You know, we've, just, we've just shared around this table. It is a symbol of the way we like to come. And being around a table is being around a family. We all share around the same meal. We share around common interests. We, we share upon this, this common background. It is part of what it's all about. And even though that table might have been in the wilderness, God still prepares a table for us to sit at and to share with him. And we know it because we come around and we feel secure. Now notice one thing before I move on. Martha is again serving. But notice one thing very special. She is not serving alone. It says that they prepared a meal and made him supper. Now if you remember back when Martha, the first time she was serving, she was all alone. And she had no joy in, 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 in serving. And she cried out to Jesus, you know, it's me making everything and I'm doing it all by myself. But here we see that in the fullness of things, she wasn't serving alone. And people, we are not meant to serve alone. If we are serving alone, we lose our joy. We are meant to serve together. That's why Jesus sent people out two by two. That's why he puts you alongside somebody else so you're not alone in what you are doing and serving. Otherwise, you end up losing your joy and start complaining to God about how tough things are being a Christian. But Martha had come to that place and others had come alongside her and they served together. And Martha, in this place, had the joy of serving and serving at the table of Christ. And what a beautiful place it is when we can come together and serve Christ with joy. We sometimes serve Christ with all our moans and groans and our grizzles and aches and pains rather than saying we are serving you and knowing the joy of serving him together. Right at the very end of Revelations it says, and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall sit in it, and his servants shall serve him. We will continue to serve him in this life and the next life. 
and there will be a great joy in just doing that because we love him and he loves us and so that is the way it's it's meant to be and so be aware that he wants us to be in this place of joy and what a joyful place this would have been because I said because of what Jesus you know, had done and if you remember in the last chapter Jesus was there sharing all their grief and now he is there sharing all their joy and that's where that's where he's trying to get us to get us out of grief and into a place where we can share the joy of it and he wants to share that with us but wherever he are, he, we are, he is there, but he wants to bring us into this place of the joy of the Lord. And people, a lot of times we lose the joy of the Lord and we need to find it again. Because our joy is his joy. And he is the author of our joy. And that's the things that he is trying to bring us back into. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Otherwise, we are wallowing down here in pity and self-pity and woes and grows. And Jesus is trying to get us through that into the joy of the Lord. He wants our thanksgiving to come from the heart. You know, we can fake our thanksgiving and we can pretend, oh, thank you, Lord, but this is really terrible. <laughs> when in reality, he wants that joy to be real. And just like Paul in that prison was able to sing out and give joy to the Lord, we need to find those places wherever we are in the things of God. Verse 3, the anointing. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Let's just take another verse from Mark 14.3 which is the parallel one he sat at the table sorry as he sat at the table a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard and she broke the flask and poured it on his head so we have here I want you to notice four things Mary anointed both his head and his feet secondly Mary broke the flask that she had and she poured that over Jesus' head and over his feet. And she poured it so much that the thing overflowed and ran down everything. And it says there that the, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. Not just the room, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. And lastly, I want you to notice one thing, that Mary didn't say one single word. And yet God used her in a very special way. Psalm 23, we keep coming back to that again. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runneth over. This is the way God consecrates you. This is the way God does things. He does things to excess until you are so full that your cup runneth over. And when your cup runneth over, then you are able to overflow into things around you. And this is what Jesus does here with Mary. He fills her cup up so much that she just overflows. Overflows and the fragrance of it begins to fill this whole house. Verse 4. 
and so powerful a, a, a picture of the way God does things. If we allow him to fill us, he will keep on filling us until it, there's nowhere else for it to go except out from us. It says that springs of living waters will flow out of us. It's not much use having, having this, this big spring of water in here if it's not flowing out to others to be able to touch. And this is what God wants to do with each and every one of us. And so the father here wanted to consecrate his son as king. He was a king. He always was a king. He was born to us as a king. You know, as a baby, we had the wise men come. We had the shepherds come. He was a baby king. And it says that, that the government would be upon his shoulders. He was born and he was raised as a king to bring his kingdom down to here. And so we are and we worship a king we always have. We are part of his kingdom. He will return and judge the world as a king and he will rule and reign as a king. But he always has been a king. He, always been, he has always been the sovereign king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he always has been that and he always will be that. And so the father wanted to bring this out. He wanted to bring it out that his son was about to die as a king, as their king, as our king. And he wanted to do something very, very special. And so he wanted Mary to anoint Jesus as a king and prepare him for the burial and prepare him for the cross. And secondly, I said, remember, that he also wanted to anoint the Lamb of God because Jesus is both, and he's still both. He's still the Lamb of God, and he's still the King seated upon the throne. He still bears the marks of Calvary as the Lamb who was slain upon that throne. Now, what did they do with the Passover lamb? Each family would bring in six days before the Passover, they would choose a lamb and bring it into the house. And the first thing that they would do with the Passover lamb is that they would take the oil and they would anoint the feet of this lamb and clean the feet of this lamb because it had been out in the paddocks and anoint the feet to clean the feet of the lamb so they would be spotless. And then the lamb would be kept in the house and studied and it would be checked for anything to make sure that it was without blemish. And usually on the second day before the Passover, if the lamb was found to be without blemish, they would then take the oil and they would anoint the, the, the head of the lamb with oil to say that this lamb is now ready for the sacrifice and is fit to come before God as a perfect sacrifice. Can you see what Mary was called to do? It's not just her going in and pouring oil and all this. It's all about what the Father was... It was a picture that the Father was trying to bring to everybody. And it is a very, very, very special thing. Now you have to remember this is a scene of great rejoicing. And God is asking... Mary to do something completely different. Mary would come in with a greater message. Now I bet Mary would have liked to have just gone there and been, you know, been a part of the party and just relax and, you know, I mean, just, in, uh, you know, just let it all be and, 
and just give thanks for Lazarus and, and having her, having, having her, you know, like her brother back. And yet sovereignly God touches this woman and gives her a great message. And it is a prophetic message. It is a prophetic message without words. It is a picture which is so powerful that it speaks a thousand words a thousand times over. And it is a picture which has, you know, you know, which has, was, you know, was shown then and still remains today. So powerful was that picture which God spoke through this woman. And so this was, the, this was why the God you know, spoke to her. This is why he sent the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, 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 I mean, to anoint Mary and to give her whatever she needed to bring this message into this group. And not just this group, but all of us, and, and bring it to the world. Why did the Father choose her? Well, you... The, you know, we've talked about Mary a fair bit, and I don't want to keep talking about Mary, but you know, you know, we've talked about her great love and, and her great devotion, her humbleness and her openness of, of heart. And through this, I've, I've actually said, God was able to show her many things. They were probably only part of the reason. God, I mean, God, uh, God in his wisdom alone knows why he chooses this person over somebody else. God knows who he can trust. It says that the eyes of God search, are searching the world, looking for people that he can trust and use. And he searches the very heart. And somehow he must have searched Mary's heart and said, yeah, I can use her in this way. She had known him as her prophet the first time she met him. Last time she knew him as her priest, able to go into death and bring back you know, you know, you know, her brother from the grave. And now God opens up this whole new revelation of Jesus as her king. But not just her king, a king who was about to die. And people, it is what Mary saw in his death, which is so important. She saw in his, his death the absolute value of his death and his sacrificial death. And how costly that was going to be and what it really meant. And people, when we are saved, it is that fact which tips the balance in us. And Mary, somehow, God showed her that. And she saw his death, and she saw the value of it. And God moved in her to do something you know, you know, you know, you know, with that. She had seen the value in his life, and she knew the value in his life. But now she saw the value in his death. And there's a lot of people who you know, will talk about the value in, in Christ's life and what he did. But very few come to know the value in his death and what his death has done for them. But when we know that, then she was able to move. And she laid hold of this faith and this revelation that God had and she moved in and did what God asked her to do. And let's look what happened in verse 4. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, pardon me, who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. And so 
the finger is pointed at Judas. Every time the finger is pointed at Judas. But let's just see what, what Mark and Matthew says. It says, but his disciples, when they saw it, were indignant. So hang on a minute. It wasn't just Judas. It was all his disciples. What Mary did, they were all looked at her and they said, no, 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 this is, this, this is not right. That, that, that money should not have been used that way. Now, people's 300 denarii mightn't sound like much. It is equivalent to about a year's wages. Now, in anybody's language, that is a lot of money. And for Mary, it would have been astronomical. A, a year's wages just poured out like that over his head and over his feet. And here she was willing to obey the Father and do just that. You know, there is a cost when God calls us to do everything. And we're all willing to put up our hands and God's saying, you know, come and do this. And we say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then God says, it's going to cost you this much. And we say, oh, oh hang on a minute, I've got to look after the kids or... Um, you know, it's my dad's birthday and we find some excuse to, you know, pull out. But Mary must have known the cost because she took that with her when she went. It would have been probably her sole possession of value. For a lot of women in those times, their, their whole dowry was wrapped up in this very expensive bottle of, of, of perfume. And sometimes it, it was used to pay the dowry so they'd get a husband. And so what she was doing was giving, giving it all. And it is a very costly thing when God calls you to do something. Sometimes the cost is small, but there can be times when the cost is very, very, very large. So large, in fact, that people lay down their life for Jesus Christ. And that is the ultimate cost that we, we do and can and sometimes have to lay down our life for him. John points out here some great contrasts between Mary and the others there. Mary was generous, while the others were greedy. Mary was humble, the others were arrogant about what she was doing. Mary was selfless, the others were selfish. Mary draws near, others were holding back. And there is a great contrast in all of us sometimes that we need to choose which side of the fence we're going to fall off. Do we fall off on the selfish side or the selfless side? You know, and and that's the that's the that's the pivoting point as to what how God is able to use us. Can you remember too that I said that Mary not only anointed his head but she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, that probably doesn't sound like much. But in, in those days, it was a shameful thing for a woman to you know, open up her hair in public and then for her to go and use that hair to go and wipe the feet of a man was a very, very shameful thing. And so if you think they were worried about the money, think what they would have been thinking about this poor woman who was willing to do that with her hair and put herself in this shameful you know, position and make a fool of herself because of her love of Christ. So not only did she pay this cost in financial means, she also paid a great cost 
to her reputation and the way people looked at her. And yet her love and her, you know, her obedience carried her through, not only to pour out this ointment, but to go through and do whatever the Father had asked, to wipe his feet with her hair, to bow down before him and make sure that everything was done to the utmost things that the Father had put on, on, on her heart. You know, it says there in the next verse, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept for this day of my burial. For the poor you will always, you will have always, but me, you do, you do not always have. It was only Jesus that came to her defence. And I'm afraid, as a Christian, you will find many times that you will do things for God and your brothers and your sisters will not stand by your side. They will probably be you know, like the disciples and they will look down their noses and do all sorts of things. And the only solace you will find is that Jesus will come to your defence. It might not even be publicly like he did it here. It might be privately between you and him. But he will come to your defence if you are doing what he has asked you to do. And sometimes the only solace we find in doing the things of God is afterwards pushing ourselves back into him and finding that solace. And, and you will find the words, this is what I want you to do. We can only find it in Christ. God prepared Mary for this time. And God prepares you and I for whatever he wants us to do. He knew, he said that she had kept this until that day just for that reason. She didn't probably think she was keeping it for that reason. She probably thought she was keeping it to, for, a, for a future husband or something. And yet when it came to the point, she knew that that was for Jesus. And God in everything is, that he has done in your life has prepared you in some way and kept things that he wants in you to be used. And when that time comes, he will point to that and, and ask you to give that into him. She broke the alabaster flask. And that's quite significant. She could have just poured a little bit out, you know. That, that, that stuff is really strong. This is concentrated perfume, absolute concentrate. But she broke it. In other words, there was no going back. Once she broke that flask, she had to do something with it. And so she just poured it out all over his head, all over his feet, so much so that she had to then get down and, and wipe off the excess. She broke it. And people, in our giving, we need to break that tie. We need to break that hold in what we're trying to hang on to and what, what God is trying to get from us. She broke it. But there's a great picture here of the way Christ was broken for us. Christ broke himself on that cross that the very fragrance of his death might then flow out and not just fill a room but fill a house and his house. The fragrance of Christ's death fills this house. It fills all his houses right across this whole world. And when people come in and sense this fragrance of Christ, they are drawn to it. You can only go two ways when Jesus is calling you. You, you will either run a mile or you will be drawn to the fragrance. And that fragrance has to do with his death. There is something in his death which is drawing you and wanting you to find out what it's all about. And this is what's happening here. 
She didn't pour out 10%, which is the old-fashioned tithe. In the Old Testament, it was actually 22.5%. No, 22.3% was the actual tithe in the Old Testament, not 10%. She didn't pour that out. She broke the bank. She emptied the bank and poured the whole bank over him. And sometimes people, God asks us to empty the bank. And that could be financially or emotionally or physically, all sorts of things. And yet there is a very special purpose in why God is doing it then. And people, we need to understand that God is doing that and will continue to do that to get his message out. And God has chosen to use us as vessels to get his message out, to get his purpose out. There is a calling upon each and every one of us once we become Christians to hear God, to listen to God, and to obey God, and then he is able to get us to do what he wants. You know, so powerful was that, uh, I mean, that experience. It is, it is a shattering thing to think about it. Years ago, I wasn't a part of the church here, but I knew a lady who was in this church years ago when it was first formed in this area. And she had a very, very hard marriage. She had, she had children. Very difficult marriage, and I knew her because she was part of a group, you know, you had sort of down at, at Dodgers Ferry there. Very, very difficult and very, very uh, you know, hard marriage, and struggle, struggle street all the way. And you, tragically, one night, her husband, driving home from Sorrell, uh, on his motorbike, hit the bridge at um, Einstein Creek and was killed. If, that, if you're having a bad marriage and then that happens, it just seemed to go from bad to worse. She had a lot of children, everything, her whole life was just, you know, you know, falling down around her. And the funeral for this, you know, this young man was up at, uh, up at DeGrave Street, in family church, you know, in DeGrave Street. And I went up there and I remember going up there and as I came into, into South Hobart, the church there, it was a very, very sad funeral. It's not one of these you know, joyous Christian funerals because there had been so much strife. And the moment I walked into that church, all I could see it was a wedding. So powerful was that vision that all I could see was a wedding. And all I could feel was absolute joy. And here's everybody so sad around me. And I'm thinking I'm going crazy. I really thought I was going crazy. And it's not like I had, a, like I had a, this, this out-of-body experience. I was talking to people, and yet that's all I could feel. That's all I could see. I could see this woman who was dressed in black actually dressed in white. I could see, that, I could see all her children running around full of joy. And this lasted all the way through the funeral, right through afterwards when you go and talk to people, and it didn't leave me. And I had great difficulty just being there. I just wanted to jump up and shout for joy. And yet I had, to, I, had to, I had to bridle my tongue and I had to take the smile off my face. It was so powerful. And I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? I'm going crazy. Now that stayed with me for weeks and probably could have been even one or two months afterwards. I couldn't shake it. You know, to this day, I cannot remember that funeral, but I can still remember what the, the vision that God showed me when I was there. And finally one morning I got up and God said, go and tell her what you saw. And I drove down, and it was really difficult. You, you think of how difficult it would be to you know, sort of tell a woman who's just lost her husband, whose life's a mess, 
that God has got all this planned for it. But I did, and it was like everything lifted. And, yeah, she left. Eventually she ended up yeah, marrying in that church. I didn't get an invite to wedding, by the way. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. I, I'd already been there. So. <laughs> but, and, but you see, what I'm saying is it was so powerful in me, I couldn't let it go. And God would not let me let it go. Now, because I was probably so weak, he probably knew that I wouldn't have the courage to go up and tell this woman what I'd seen unless he made it so powerful and strong on me. Now, this doesn't happen all the time. I can count on one hand the amount of times when I've had that experience so strongly from God. And it's always been when God needed to do something very special in, 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 in me. And so people, it's not going to be like that all the time. But when you go through something like that, you understand that when God asks you to do something simple, then we need to be open to God and God you know, can, you know, you know, can use us. How lovely are the feet of him who brings good news. And people, God wants us to take the, the message out. Not just bring the message here, take the message out and bring that to everybody. It says there in one of the Gospels, whenever this, whenever the gospel, sorry, whenever this gospel is preached, the whole world, to the whole world, what this woman has done will be also told as a monument to her. Why? Because she was so great? No, because of the message that she carried was so great and because of the love of God in, in her. We are messengers of God whether in word or in deed or whatever we do, God wants us to be, you know, those messengers. I'm going to finish off here, but I'm going to just talk a little bit more about, as an eldership, what's been on our hearts. We believe that the Holy Spirit wants to move. We have that urgency in our, in our own spirits, the Holy Spirit wants to move. And I just need to remind you of a couple of things, and I'll just open this up, that the gifts that you have and the callings that you have are not yours. They're his. If they're yours, then you're on the wrong foot and you're starting off on the wrong foot. They're his gifts and they're his callings. And they're not ours yet to control or to own or to manipulate but he gives us these gifts so that we can touch other people. Not just within the body, but outside the body. This, I know it's important for all these things to happen here, but it's more important for these things to happen out there. And the vision of this church is not, uh, not to meet here on just Sunday. The, the vision of this church is to touch this valley, to go out from here and touch every aspect of this valley and every home. Not, not to bring people in, but to send people out so that the gospel goes from one end of this valley, from Dunalley right through to where it ends up at Colebrook and whatever, whichever direction, you know, either way. And God wants to do that. And the only way it's going to happen is when people know and hear their calling and start to move in those callings. There are many gifts and there are many callings, but there is one spirit and there is only one God who is the author and the one who makes these things happen. 
And so over the next few weeks,